Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Heat, the 1995 film written and directed by Michael Mann. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Straight out the gate, question for Spotify listeners is, what is your favorite L.A. movie? Like a movie where L.A. is like a character in the movie. (laughs) L.A. plays a role in this movie for sure. Yeah, so let us know if you're listening in the Spotify app. Also, we're talking about Heat because our Patreon vote for this month is about heist movies. And there's a lot of heisting in this film. Uh, So we thought it'd be fun to then throw the vote over to the patrons to see what other uh, what other movies and the heist genre they want to talk about. So there's The Sting, mm-hmm. The Italian Job, Inside Man, The Town, Baby Driver, The Fight is Happening. So if you want to vote, the link to our Beyond Screenplay Patreon is in the show notes. Let's talk about heat. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I have a, a kind of a, a history with this movie mm. a little bit hmm. where I was really obsessed with it for a while. I saw it kind of around the end of high school, early college years, I think. Pretty sure I mentioned on our Apocalypse Now episode that my brother exposed me to like cinema, like mm-hmm. already, like this is like mm-hmm. the cinema you've been missing, kid. Like now that you're like an adult, like <laughs> here's some stuff. And one of the movies he sat me down and made me watch was Heat. And he like told me the, like the lore about it and like Michael Mann he's like so like wants to get it accurate and he's so particular and it's like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino these like <laughs> huge like they'd never been in a movie together like on screen together and had a scene so there's the scene in the middle where it's like the first time and so it just like got me super hyped mm-hmm. and then I also just love crime stories in general mm-hmm. and so I remember watching this and yeah just like sinking into it and totally like being won over by the like wow like I get it this is so cool and then I feel like you know, I watched it a lot for a while didn't watch it for a long time and then Alex I think you and I watched it or part of it several years ago or you told me to watch it I don't know if we watched it together <laughs> I, I forget whatever the viewing was it was not ideal and was very <laughs> awkward and it was like this is 90s and weird and the, the age was showing well is, is that thing where like you've hyped it up to like a good friend and then that friend is sitting next to you and is maybe kind of laughing during certain right. scenes or yeah it's, it's you know. I big Lebowski oh. you I'm sorry I'm sorry <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. if I made that an awkward viewing <laughs> but I felt that way too and so going into this rewatch I was a little bit like frustrated like why do we decide to do this like it's three hours long and then immediately as soon as it started I was like teleported back to it mm-hmm. and I was just completely into it and I love this movie is how I've come away. I understood it for the first time, 100% this time also. It kind of reminded me of The Departed, which we just yeah. talked about on Patreon. Oh, yeah. and we can get into that. But sort of similar to the most recent viewing of The Departed, where it suddenly everything clicked. This time I was finally able to track everything. Do you mean you just like actually could hear the dialogue or like every word of the dialogue <laughs> this time somehow? Because Or subtitles. Yeah, I was going to say. So I didn't have subtitles on, but I was wearing really good headphones and okay. like would skip that back mm. to be like, okay, no, wait, what did they say? And like, I'm going to pay attention. Okay, Wayne Grove is a name. Okay, yeah. It's a name I'm never going to forget now, right. unfortunately. It's the one that gets said the most in the movie, Wayne Grove. Yeah. And it's a single word, apparently. <laughs> yeah. It's, what? Yeah. I've had that name bouncing around in my head like a 
pinball ever since <laughs> I watched this movie a few days ago. I was like, man, Wayne Grow, that guy. <laughs> Just, uh, uh, but yeah. Well, thank you in this case for making me watch this movie for the first time. Okay. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. What was your experience like? Because I'm here to admit that I hadn't seen it all the way through. It's one of those movies that I knew what it was and had seen it in like bits and pieces and thought I had like a good handle on it, but I did not. Mm. But I absolutely did not because I, in my brain, the shootout is the end of the movie. Mm. Right. Absolutely, it is not. There's yeah. so much movie left after that shootout. It's like that Dark Knight thing where the climax is sort of like end of third act of five or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> There's a lot of Dark Knight things to talk about here. Yeah. Very, very much. It's a movie and a half. Yeah. Just very, very impressed and had a great time watching this and heavyweight performances as you guys are talking about. Just oddly poetic. You know, I don't know like what I was expecting because Michael Mann is such a wonderful writer and his dialogue has this mm. lyricism to it. It's like so punchy and like streetwise and just, I don't know, it conveys the texture of the world and the characters that speak it really clearly, like in just a few words somehow. Like the obviously the first scene where we meet Pacino's character he walks in and he's like analyzing what happened, you know, at the armored car robbery and everything. It's just really great, infinitely quotable, it feels like. <laughs> and yeah, what a great L.A. film, as you mentioned. So thank you. I cannot wait to dive into more of all of it with you guys. I had a really great time. But I will say the reason I asked is because I was just watching it at home. And I, you probably had a different experience in a theater, but I was just riding the levels in my house mm, where I was like, yeah. could not hear anything anybody mm. was saying in the dialogue scenes and then was like blown out completely by by the gunshots and the action sequences. So yeah. not an optimal viewing experience <laughs> if you have to watch it for the very first time in your house. Right. So, subtitles are your friend in that case. Yeah. Well, and sound is like a huge thing in yep. this movie. And we, we will definitely talk about that also. Alex, what about you? What's your experience relationship to this movie? You kind of already touched on it, which is uh -huh. my first introduction <laughs> was through you. There, it was that interesting experience of you, you know, talking about it as this landmark film for you in your development as a filmmaker. And so I went into it with like, Michael and I like a lot of the same stuff. Like we are very like mind meld about our taste a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like the first hour of this movie I was really having some trouble understanding like why, like <laughs> why? Because it was so, it felt so dated in so many ways. There were, yeah, like I think especially in the first, I think really the first like hour of this movie is like this hump I have to get over. And then I love the second two mm -hmm. thirds. Like I, like it's almost like Moulin Rouge for some people. You got to get to the elephant love medley and then you're good. But with this movie, it's kind of like you got to get to the second heist and you're good for me because a lot of the first, hour is a lot of not understanding what people are saying too many names too many details weird bad 80s 90s music like weird love stories that i'm not really buying or into just a lot of stuff that i'm not into and then i realized <laughs> it's a three-hour movie and there's going to be two more hours of this how many <laughs> get through this and then the movie really kind of kicks into high gear for me with that kind of second heist when the De Niro character realizes that the cops right. are there. And I think before that heist, there's actually even kind of like a, almost like a check-in with each character. There's like a series of 
kind of quiet scenes that just feel like all very good character scenes. And I think around there is where the movie starts to solidify for me. I got why this was a good movie. And I had the same experience again watching it uh, the last couple of nights. Because I, I, funny enough, I ended up only getting through the first hour the first night I was watching it this week. <laughs> and so it was just the part that I don't like. And <laughs> yeah. was like, I oh, God. Yeah, I was having the same thought, Michael, that you had before going into it this time, which was, we're going to talk about this movie on the podcast. I don't know. Like, I'm <laughs> so not into this. Al Pacino's doing his Al Pacino thing. He's the most. He's he's like just doing it so hard. And, I, and like, it works in some scenes. Like I really like his first scene at the crime scene. It's fun to watch it's great. him just, yeah. just yeah. kind of take control. And then there's scenes like when he's talking to his informant and he's just so big and so Give me all you got. Give me all you got. <laughs> She's got a great ass. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just tired, you know? Like I just I don't need this, okay? I thought the whole movie was going to be just that for three hours again. Uh-huh. Like I forgot what the rest of the movie was. All that stuff is there, but there's a lot of things that really compel me in the mm-hmm. second, in the last two thirds. So we'll get into all that. But I had the same journey as last time, which was <laughs> what the hell am I doing here into? <laughs> wow, I get it. I get why Christopher Nolan basically just took all this for the dark night. I, yep. I, I got it. You know, and there's a lot of really amazing filmmaking and really modern there's all these dated aspects to the film, but there's also these really modern aspects of the film that feel still fresh and better than other action sequences totally. I've seen since, mm-hmm. you know, so really interesting film, really complicated in all these different ways. Yeah. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Watching Al Pacino, uh, <laughs> because, because we just talked about The Departed, uh-huh. you know, we had a conversation about, you know, the scene with uh, Jack Nicholson and mm. Leonardo DiCaprio about the rat. And we were talking about yeah. like how much is too much with like actors chewing the scenery. Mm. I was like, yeah, it is kind of like Al Pacino's like writing that line, like kind of the whole time, but like it works for me with him. But it's, it is just that thing of like, you are an actor and you are improvising and having fun because you can yeah it, it's really just him with the, those like those informants in the early part that just crossed the line for me where it's like i'm <laughs> right. is this scene like getting to the point already or is this just we're just gonna sit here for a while and watch al pacino do this uh-huh. <laughs> uh. yeah well and so i'm sure you guys read the same thing that i did about pacino saying that in 2016 in an interview he said that he thought in his mind, his character was on coke the whole time. Mm. Um, like <laughs> that that, that's what he decided for his performance he was going to okay. do uh, for, for Lieutenant Vincent Hanna. And <laughs> yes, quite obviously. <laughs> right. And yes. <laughs> the scene where he shows up and um, Ralph is sitting in his house and he's yeah. like, yeah. He goes into that whole speech and like, I'm going to take my TV. And then he like kicks the TV out of the car later. You're like, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Seems like seems like there's some uh, altered state there going on. Some right. drugs involved. Very Scarface Pacino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Make some things click that uh-huh. maybe maybe could have been in the text of the movie. That would have yeah, helped a little just bit. Just but... show me using cocaine once so I can yeah. understand <laughs> right. where it's coming from. <laughs> what in the world I'm watching? <laughs> okay, and so last but not least, Brian, what's your relationship story with this movie? Uh, yeah, it's it's a movie that I um, saw once or twice back in probably the early aughts, you know, mid-aughts, kind of that thing, and had not watched since. So I definitely remembered the big, big stuff, you know, the diner scene and the shootouts on the street and everything like that. I didn't remember a lot of the smaller things. And it's interesting because there's two things going on here, one of which is I'm a sucker for and miss 
these huge ensemble like movies from the from the mid 90s like i was 15 when con air and the rock were and you know heat were coming out just sort of like everyone's in it danny trejo is there yep he's the sam jackson of movies without sam jackson in them he's named trejo in this movie which is the most you know brilliant (laughs) character naming ever and I guess maybe I need to watch the Fast and the Furious movies, Alex, because I feel like that's the closest thing we have today to these. <laughs> but like the actors, I don't know. It's not the same right. vibe as these not ensemble as casts. Right. Yeah. I've rewatched Con Air like maybe a year ago and had the same thought. I was like, I miss these. We don't have these anymore. But uh, but then there's also the Michael Mann aspect, who's so interesting. You know, he's mm-hmm. only made a dozen movies and like half of them people don't think are very good. <laughs> but then the other <laughs> half are like, you know, four or five of the best movies ever. Um, So it's so interesting to watch his filmography and like leave it to him to put a, an 80s score in a mid 90s movie. <laughs> like it just feels like that weird sort of like, hi, I'm Michael Mann and I'm going to like Michael Manify this movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But having watched Collateral so much now and now watching Heat, you start to see that that DNA, you know, in, in more of his movies. So yeah, I had a really good time watching it. It definitely felt dated in a way that it certainly wouldn't have, I think, to me watching it 10 plus years ago, even. And like you said, Alex, there was definitely I, I didn't didn't dislike any of it. But there was a time where I was like, OK, I'm having a perfectly fine time. But by the end, I was like, yes, good job, mm-hmm. movie. You did the movie <laughs> thing where I feel like I went on a thing and I, and I feel the way I'm supposed to feel at the end. Uh, so, yeah, it's like one of those rides that it, like it reminded me a lot of The Departed with this good guy, bad guy. You're sort of following mm-hmm. them in their personal lives. Yeah. And Heat has twice as many characters and is half as confusing to me. And at the end of The Departed, I feel like I want to smack people. Whereas at the end of Heat, <laughs> I'm like, good job. You did all the things that you want to do at the end of your movie. If you want to hear me talk about The Rat and The Departed, join us on Patreon. Say, multiple people have commented like, that is the angriest I have ever heard Brian <laughs> right. on the pod. I didn't know Brian could get that angry about. He's usually down with that most rat. anything in film, except right. for this freaking rat. Except for a literal rat. Anyway. Uh, so yeah. Really enjoyed uh, rewatching Heat, and uh, and it's definitely not like oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I forgot. But it's a movie that I that I like a lot, and would you know watch again tomorrow if you asked me to. Yeah, I just agree that this movie is more orienting than something like The Departed. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I felt like I basically knew what was going on in Heat from you know pretty early on. There are a ton of characters, but I think because the characters are in these convenient groups mm-hmm. that you're just kind of like, okay, Neil McCauley and his crew are over here and there's right. Val Kilmer and there's these guys. And then there's Vincent Hanna, you know, Pacino and his team is over here. And there's not really complicated hierarchy going on. It's just this guy and his team, that guy and his team, they're trying to catch those guys. The end, basically. And so even though there ends up being like a lot of maneuvering and for a minute, you're like, how is Dennis Haysburg going to fit into all of this? Right. And some of yeah. that stuff, like, what are we stealing? What are these metals that we're after in this warehouse? <laughs> right. Like, doesn't matter. Some detours. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, things like Dennis Haysbert are interesting because it's like, we're going to show you like this slice of life of this character for like an hour and a half. And then like De Niro steps in. He's like, hey, do you want to like, you know, yeah, suddenly, yeah. okay, now I understand how you're actually part of the story because you weren't for a long time. Yeah. And I do want to get back to him because I, I really think that inclusion of that character is important. But mm-hmm. yeah, I just I just think this movie ultimately has a simpler structure and sort of a simpler dramatic question and trajectory than something like The Departed does. Yeah, It sometimes feels like other crime movies are tying knots into the plot for their Mm. own sake. Like, oh, we need some more twists. We need some more twists. 
Whereas, you know, everything in this from the very first heist ends up being consequential as things go along. So it's like the first guy that we see, you know, when Wayne Grow joins the heist and then the armored car heist, all of that has direct causality on everything that spins mm-hmm. out from that afterward. So it ultimately hangs together really well. It's not episodic, even if like the different scenes have their this distinctive flavorings to them. It ultimately is all one long chain of causality that is traceable through. Mm. Right. It's a nice sort of you get at the very beginning. It's like this is a heist movie. So you're going to see one now. So you don't have to wait, <laughs> you know, for for a long time. Like you're going to get it right away. And then De Niro is involved in that heist and Pacino is on his tail. And you're like, cool, like that one scene or sequence of scenes is all you need to go. Got it. And then that is what the entire movie, however much it branches out, the entire movie is always being pulled back by these two main characters and this one through line of character after character. And at the midpoint, it does the cool switch where like now they're watching us. So then now it almost becomes like the the cops are trying to, mm-hmm. to like they were following these guys and then now they're sort of being followed by these guys. So it kind of has a fun like little shift there. Yeah, it's, it's a good time. Yeah, I mean, I think like you guys are saying, by the end, you appreciate, I appreciate how long this movie is anyway, because it does give mm-hmm. you that time to set up all these pieces. And I think high school, college Michael wasn't able to track all the names and everything to sure. appreciate the, the dominoes that are, mm. like you guys are saying, from the first scene set up and the sh- knockdown, because I don't think I really understood how like William Fickner's character came in to mm-hmm. be and mm-hmm. like how it's all tied into that original heist that goes wrong and freaking Wayne Grow. <laughs> Wayne Grow is a Our name. Our best friend Wayne Grow. <laughs> yeah, it's a name. <laughs> the worst thing to have to say uh, or hear. It, it made me kind of like you were saying, Brian, miss like long for more of these kind of epic operatic, like big movies where mm-hmm. you know, we have TV shows and true detectives that can kind of you know, do it in that format. But there was the time where there could be a movie where you just like go on a whole journey. It's like, you know, going out to the theater and you watch the whole thing happen in this one. And it feels like there's, two big acts and like an inter- and they want to know and this movie just has so much of that and there is a lot of setup that happens in the beginning i agree alex the relationships i don't 100 percent buy mm. there's 100 percent too much al pacino sex scene <laughs> okay really quick yeah that was part of like like or er, like the early like bumps to, that i have to get over in this movie <laughs> or, like just like just yeah. cut to this awkward close-up where Al Pacino and this woman are like kind of coming in out of frame <laughs> and they're like kissing each other kind of, but like it feels more just kind of like they're mashing their like faces at each other. And it's supposed to be sexy, I think because of the music and the way it's shot, but it's not sexy at all. It's just no. a lot of reshuffling of bodies happening. <laughs> I got into a debate the other day with someone about, who is like objectively hotter? Is it Pacino or De Niro? And <laughs> De Niro. I didn't even think like, it was a question. Like it's De Niro. Not, it's always De Niro. I just thought that's a question that the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, De Niro is he's he's handsome. Yeah. If you had to pick, I mean, if you had to pick in this movie, it's Val Kilmer. But if sure. you had to pick the hair, though, Pacino or De Niro, like it's definitely De Niro. Anyway, I yes, wow, just people I don't want to see sex scenes of. Yeah. No right. offense. No right. offense, Al. 
Yeah, so there are those bumps, but you know, the uh, obviously the relationships between all the characters are really important. And yeah. Al Pacino and his wife and her daughter, his stepdaughter, Natalie Portman, that was also really fun mm-hmm. as like young me to be like, oh my God, it's Natalie Portman. She was in movies before The Phantom Menace. So there's a lot of expositional setup, but then there is, and I think you were mentioning this, Alex, like a, a mode that it goes into for a while where it is just like, let's look at all of these men basically and their personal lives and their relationships and like compare and contrast mm-hmm. and that's where you start to kind of get you know a lot of the big ideas of this movie of like how different is the al pacino character and the robert de niro character how you know cops and robbers how much of two sides of the same coin are they and like what mm-hmm. are you know it starts exploring that where you see all the cops having dinner and then like all the yep robbers mm-hmm. having dinner <laughs> and so part of that can be like slow and like a little the movie definitely takes its time going through all of that i especially found it compelling this time around to like really sink into that and sink into like the meaning that is being conveyed by it and something i noticed just like a little filmmaking thing that i loved is in the scene where neil robert de niro's character is meeting edie for the first time and they're at Mm -hmm. that bar you know we see her notice him at the bookstore but then they're sitting there and he's very guarded at first and like, why are you so interested in me? Like, like, why are you answering, asking me all these questions? And then as soon as he realizes there's nothing nefarious, he opens up and also the camera does a really fun move Mm. that moves across from at the beginning. It's shooting Mm -hmm. them from behind and then it swings across and it's shooting them from the front. It's such a simple thing, but I really love that in movies and you don't see that a ton where like the camera does a big shift that also helps signal the shift in the scene so that's a little example but yeah how all of that sets up those characters and their relationships and how important that is to understand their relationship to kind of empathy and humanity and psychology and all of that i love it when the theme of the movie begins to emerge because that's really when you start to get the audience interested beyond like are these guys going to catch those guys Mm -hmm, Right? right yeah like what is all of this for what is all of this about that's when the thematic conversation comes in. And I agree that like it isn't immediately obvious how Natalie Portman's character fits into the thematic mm-hmm. conversation about these robbers. And you start to see it as the movie starts to spend more time with like, yeah, the people in their personal lives um, on both sides. And it's a really interesting thematic conversation too, as you're pointing out, Michael, where it's like that sort of symbiotic relationship between people on either side of the law and the marked similarities between the two. Like, I think that this movie's really a fascinating look at that and a really thorough look at that, among other things. And I also love like where it goes with all of it. And so I feel like once you as an audience member start to get interested in that conversation that's happening, that's when you'll follow this movie anywhere yeah. yeah. because that's the thing is like, even if it did at the midpoint, stop being uh, this perfect row of dominoes. I think we would still follow it to the end if it was still on the same line of thought in terms of theme. And so we see that with other heist films or other crime movies or just even other plot heavy sort of labyrinthine movies that don't have the causality that this movie has. And I think it's a really impressive feat that this movie pulls it off in terms of like plot mechanics. Mm -hmm. But if the theme is strong enough, a theme can hold a movie together even when it is really twisty and somewhat disconnected and disjointed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. And I think that, you know, cause it's funny. I was like, I didn't th- think I had a, a problem hearing the dialogue, 
But I also think that I'm one of those people where like once it's been a long scene of people just like exp- like sharing details, I'm like, I don't think I actually heard any of that. But like, I know <laughs> right. he wants to get over there and like, mm-hmm. you know, he's upset about it. So I'm, I'm good. But because we keep coming back to their personal lives, you know, Hannah and, and Macaulay, especially, you really are getting a sense of like who these people are as people. And you've got a quote unquote good guy and a quote unquote bad guy, as in a lawman and a criminal. But the lawman in Al Pacino is, you know, more and more unhinged and is like not the kindest dude and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, we're following uh-huh. De Niro. And then once that scene, like that scene with Edie, as you were saying, Michael, is like, that is sort of a turning point now where we it's an intimate scene and now we are actually starting to care about him and like oh he actually cares about this person he's not just like sure you'll do for you know this week or whatever like it's like no mm-hmm. I, i'm like in a relationship and i care about it but i have this philosophy this is what you're saying trisha like you know the, the, the how the theme is sort of like wrestling between these two characters and i think it's interesting because i always think about how michael mann has so many movies with two people with opposing viewpoints headbutting Mm. each other you know collateral and miami vice and public enemies the insider and this one i was like it's interesting to rewatch it under that with that context because it's like you have two people on opposite sides of the law who are kind of the same in the sense like they're both dealing with this like i i care too much about the thing that i do to actually like give time to family whether it's i have a family and i don't care about them or i'm not going to have a family but then of course you're seeing how they are each character is dealing with that differently over the course of the movie. And then, of course, De Niro makes that tragic choice at the end to to not let go of the thing that he should be letting go of. And yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's great. As you were saying, Trisha, it just it gives you something very personal to latch on to and something and something thematic to latch on to where you're like, I know what this movie is talking about, even if I don't know the details of what exactly what street corner they need to meet at in order to climb up the ladder to find the camera or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 You know, that is really why that midpoint, you know, the big scene of the movie, they're Mm -hmm. on camera together in the same room for the first time ever De Niro Pacino. That scene delivers for me because they just come out and say it basically like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like we are the same. Like we are going to just basically state this thematic idea here and now in a really compelling way and reveal how these two guys really understand each other. And it's just a really great scene. And I think I was actually kind of nervous going into that scene because I could feel, oh, this is like meant to be the big scene. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be just them Pacinoing and De Niroing at each other <laughs> as hard as possible in kind of like an annoying cliche way? And instead, it's a really kind of quiet, mm-hmm. subtle, interesting scene. I really, really like it. And it's just so how great that like for, for their first big scene together for it to be that good and not mm-hmm. just, yeah, falling back on the maybe they've become tropes. You know, these two men have become sure. actual like living, breathing tropes. And so for their scene to have that much nuance and subtlety and dynamism was so exciting to, to watch for the first time and rewatch again. Yeah, there's so much to talk about with that scene. And I want to like talk about micro stuff and also the thematic thing. I think what also struck me this time as far as like who they are is that it's not really even as simple as they're the same person, but on different sides of the law. Like there are there's kind of a crisscross happening where, you know, Rob De Niro's character, Neil, is kind of yeah sociopathic toward everybody else. Like he's you know, he's fine to like walk out or, you know, he'll kill anybody 
to do whatever he needs to do to like finish the score, etc. But he is letting himself like care about this individual. So he cares about who he cares about personally. Mm-hmm. And everybody else is expendable. And Al Pacino is a little bit the inverse where mm. he cares about the world. And, you know, in that scene, he's like, it's if it's between you and some guy you're going to whose wife you're going to turn into yeah. a widow, like I'm taking you down. So like he does have this sense of like a greater good. You know, you see him mm-hmm. uh, comforting the mother of the woman that Wayne Grove kills. It's, it's kind of an awkward sequence. But you see there are examples throughout where Al Pacino's character has this like empathy and feels mm. the weight of the pain that has been caused mm-hmm. but then isn't able to deal with his own personal life like by carrying all that weight it's creating this kind of toxic relationship with his wife and he's absent and all this stuff i appreciated that it's not just they're the same person on two different sides but how each side has these kind of interesting knock-on side effects and that's i think what also makes it thematically complex is that it's not just one is good and one is bad or any of that it's it's a whole lot of stuff going on at the same time absolutely and another thing i love about that scene is you know in our nightcrawler episode we talked about characters that are maneuvering and like trying to get power within a scene or trying to get something that they want from the other person Mm -hmm. but this scene actually doesn't have any of that There's nothing for either one of them to really gain in this scene. And so it's this really, as you were pointing out, Alex, I was expecting that to be more of a confrontation or a battle. Mm -hmm. It's not a confrontation or a battle. It's the opposite. It's bringing the characters together in a non-confrontational setting in a really smart way just to let the thematic conversation develop this richness to it, as you're pointing out, Michael. and it's kind of a gutsy choice where I think if I were tasked with writing a scene for De Niro and Pacino to play together mm. for the first time ever, I'd be like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do with this? You know? <laughs> yeah. On the the Patreon, we talked about Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're following both the criminal and we're following the lawman. And if you've done a crime story well, both of those characters are so interesting that part of the promise of the premise of a crime story is we want to see them interact with each other. But Because the necessary plot mechanics of a crime story put those characters at odds and keep them apart, you have to find really clever ways to put them in a room together that is not going to immediately explode your plot and like lead to the climax or whatever. Yeah. So this is a really amazing choice for that reason, where because Hannah lets Macaulay walk away from that metal heist that goes bad, and then they're just surveilling his crew for a while after that, at that moment, there is nothing that Hannah can get from him. Right. And so it doesn't actually harm Macaulay to talk frankly about his life because he's not admitting to any specific crimes or anything like that. There's nothing that Hannah can get him on. And at the same time, there's no reason for Hannah to lie about his life It's like, well, you know that who I am, you know who I'm following you. So it's just amazingly smart plotting that gets those characters into that diner and makes that battleground flat enough where it stops becoming a battle at a certain point. It's just like a ceasefire Mm -hmm. for a few minutes where these guys can just talk to each other. And I feel like, you know, yeah, when you hear stories about like ceasefires at war where like soldiers on opposing sides just take a minute and like hang out. Right. Mm -hmm. Those stories are always so fascinating to me because 
it speaks to this like common humanity and where in extreme situations, even strangers can have really intimate conversations Mm -hmm. like these guys. So they live in the same world in so many ways. And that is full on display the way that they have this sort of basic understanding of who the other person is in that scene. It's beautiful and it's so well written and it's so well acted. Like it's great. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that is appealing about these sort of big crime and mob movies and stuff is a lot of movies, if the good guy and the bad guy meet, like they're going to fight each other or try to kill each other or Mm -hmm. try to get the jail, you know, like you don't sit down with a Terminator and have coffee like. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could. I sell swimming pools. Um, But uh (laughs) But you also you get these sort of like it's not just about finding the bad guy and getting them. We know where they live. We know everything about them. It's Mm. about we are like in the department. We're building a case. We're trying to do this thing. We're trying to catch them in the act. And that does allow these people to actually be in a room together and allows Mm -hmm. them to sort of like almost have a relationship, you know, so it's like that's what's so fun about fun's the right word. But like that's what's so great about this movie is is that you are able to to have that scene between the two of them without it being like, well, clearly like you know you're sur- the place the diner surrounded because we got you now or whatever yeah. it's like no that's not the point that's it's it's way more complicated than that for sure well yeah and that it's so poignant like you're saying trisha that it's like i think like that war uh example of like the two armies and the people is like so apt because it's like the only other people that can understand how crazy this battle is are the people that you're fighting mm-hmm. that's so much of that power of that scene and I want to just like uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, it kind of drives me crazy. But I think it's also brilliant that like there's no there's no shot in this movie where you see Al Pacino's face and Robert De Niro's face at the same time. Mm. Like <laughs> they finally like put them in a movie together and they even have a scene together. But there's no two shot or anything like they they shot it. And, you know, this is trivia that probably most people that know mm. this movie know, but like they shot a bunch of angles but ended up using only this like shot reverse shot. And like most of the takes are from this one take. They shot it with two cameras so they could have this continuous like mm. performance. And like when Al Pacino is looking at Robert De Niro, he's like looking at like they're sharing that moment. And so it's, it's another really brave choice on top of another brave choice and yeah. never like just show them together, but still convey. There's no proof. Right. <laughs> right. It's 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 a fascinating trilogy of Pacino De Niro movies where they're in Godfather Part 2, they don't exist in the same timeline. They're in Heat, but they don't exist in the same shot, at least not their faces, and they're in Righteous Kill and nobody cared. Right. <laughs> yes. I was like, what what's the third one? Yeah, I know. It's so sad. You can technically see them in like a couple frames when he pulls them over, um, mm. but like right. it's really out of focus. That doesn't not, count. Right. It's not the same. Well then we got the Irishman. We got four hours of them together. Right. And then we got tons of it. So <laughs> yeah. it's not a big deal anymore. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply kind of jumping ahead a bit but i really tracked this time watching the movie you know from that midpoint scene on watching their characters as these parallel storylines unfolding Mm -hmm. and it really struck me this time 
noticing how they both have this kind of crisis point involving their family life, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, you've got Pacino dealing with the suicide attempt by the Natalie Portman character, and he's there with his wife in the hospital, and he gets the page, his pager goes off, mm-hmm. and he plays it off like, I'm, I'm just gonna ignore that, like, oh, my damn pager. And I, I love so much how when she says, nah, you can go, you can go. Mm. He plays it cool. And then it just cuts that shot like of him rotting. going down yeah. the stairs as fast as he possibly can. Mm. And it, it just says so much about how he really was trying. He was really trying just right, this right. once to not put the, this other thing first. So you, you do see a character change for him in, in that way where he managed to at least hold it together for a minute. But then once he has permission, he is out of there <laughs> and off on the hunt again. And at this, and it's around the same time that Robert De Niro makes the choice to not get away, but to turn around and finish what he started with Wayne Grow. <laughs> <laughs> I was tracking those those parallel moments and turns, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's just yeah. Once again, the movie felt so complete because it just hit all those beats. Right. And to end with you know him holding De Niro's hand, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Neil's hand. Uh, just felt so right and so brave, kind of, just to yeah. have it be like these men are just kind of connecting in this. You know, the chase is over; one of them won, but they were all—they're both just kind of playing this game because they just can't help themselves, and they kind of understand that, and just are kind of there for each other in the end, which is kind of a really beautiful, interesting, surprising final thing to end on in a movie about the cops chasing the robbers. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love that moment. It reminded me again of when we were talking about the departed and we were talking about how an unsustainable situation is often like a really like serves as a ticking clock. So like, even if you don't know where the climax is going to take place or something, but having a, a truly unsustainable situation is enough to keep you like really hooked in and create that sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And so this movie is like the king of unsustainable situations, obviously. I really think it's fascinating in terms of characters and character arcs that you have a movie where essentially it's a dual character arc, but it's a tragic arc for both of the central characters. Mm. They both end up worse off than where they started because they both decide consciously not to change. Right. Like, it's really interesting. I was, and not what I was expecting at all, where I was like, these guys are so close to changing. Mm -hmm, Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and at those crisis moments that you talk about, Alex, and the tragedy is that they both make those active decisions not to change. And it's just like, what a perfect thematic button on everything the movie has been talking about up until this point, not just in terms of crime, but like sort of in terms of like philosophy about what's important in your life and what you prioritize, obviously, you know, but wow, you know, cut to <laughs> me on my couch a couple of days ago, screaming at Robert De Niro's character not to go to the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it's so frustrating. It's like, you're home free. Like, they literally no. say, like, you did it. You're out. Right, right, right. And yeah. I'm also yelling at Edie to run for her life. I'm like, don't yeah. go with him, you dummy. You haven't known him for that long. You're not, you haven't dated for that long. You're yeah. not, like, married. Like, what's right. happening? Go to your graphic design. Live right. your life. <laughs> She's like, look, of of the two 50-plus men who are, you know, in this movie, you're the most attractive. She so did I make guess. the right choice. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, Trisha, thinking back on that on that Pacino crisis point, 
you're right that he doesn't really change because she gives him permission to go after he essentially tells her, right. I'm not like, going to change. I'm never going to change. Yeah, like, basically. like, don't stick around for me because this is not changing. And that's when she's like, all right, well, then okay, go. then go. Yeah, you know, exactly. Answer your page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Also, that moment is the, the crisis moment, particularly with Neil and Robert De Niro was like, if there was any question at that point of like, are you rooting for him or not? Like clearly yeah. in that moment, it's like, we have you audience. Like you, yes, you want yeah. him I'm rooting to for get him. away, right. even though he's this terrible person. Like he's killed all these people and like all this stuff. It is interesting. I was, I was thinking that moment also of like, you know, he has this mantra of like, never be attached to anything that you couldn't like leave behind at the drop of the hat. Like when you see the heat coming around the corner, and it's interesting that like the thing that he isn't able to ditch yeah. is this like the life and the revenge and all of that. And so it's, mm. yeah, that like really tracks for me this time. Right. Like, ah. You didn't take your own advice, dummy. <laughs> right. You picked the wrong thing. Right. You're ditching. The, yeah. Yes. He ha- and, and he does walk away from Edie and, and it, you can you can see it as being you know, honorable in some ways to kind of save her at that point. Yeah. But it's but it's it's so it's so contrasted with you had an out. You were home free yeah. you couldn't right. walk away from this other thing you can walk away from her which is devastating yeah, yeah. well it's like his fate is already sealed almost at that point like he made is. the wrong decision earlier so now it almost right. yeah when you went to the damn hotel yeah yeah i, I just love watching amy Brimman's face when she's sitting in the car mm. and just more and more like, <laughs> like emergency <laughs> vehicles are pulling yeah. up and she's like what am i doing <laughs> right this guy went into the building yeah <laughs> so really quick on on the, on the subject of that ending of their relationship did i miss something or how so it feels like she finds out he's a criminal suddenly and then it's like that's okay and now we're leaving like i didn't miss to run away yeah it's not okay he yeah and then it's yeah but it's okay so fast like i i don't know or maybe maybe even just how did she know he was involved with he was on the news after the shootout like so his face was on the news I think that's the implication. We don't yes. see okay. that exactly, but I think that's the implication. And I think, you know, part of what's set up and supposed to be there is that they are these kind of two lonely people that mm. have managed to find like one other person that they can connect with and share with. Right. I feel like this is again where I don't 100% buy that. So it does make her change a little bit rough. But, but yeah, her performance is great. And like, oh, as yeah. you're saying, and that's yeah. like she's great. Yeah. I love her. Yeah. Yeah, she is great. I have to ask you, especially Michael and Alex, what is your reaction to De Niro saying in his De Niro voice, eh, I'm from the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up around uh, Santa Cruz, born and raised. It's, uh, it's good. Pretty sure you're lying. <laughs> right. That was my first thought. I was like, no, I don't, think, story. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> he, he hears Edie's accent and is like, oh, she won't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why I think it was confusing for me with her character because she's she is so sweet mm. and so personable. Mm-hmm. She doesn't mm-hmm. strike me as a person that couldn't make a bunch of other friends. Like I don't buy that she's in the same boat as he is, where she's super lonely and like he's the only soul in the world who understands her. She seems pretty easygoing. You know? Well, the movie does such a good job with its other tertiary characters of putting them in really believable binds. Charlene, for example 
is in a really believable bind. We completely understand all of the forces that she is dealing with in her life and the difficulty of the choices that she has to make. And Ashley Judd is amazing. Ashley Judd is so good in this role. Her balcony wife is Mm -hmm. such a good moment. That's that's such a good scene. So good. Yeah, and she's, you know, half in at least half the scenes or more, she's carrying her baby, right? Or like, he's like a toddler, basically. And you have that wonderful contrast of like a woman who is a mother and is trying to be a mother, but has this hard edge to her where she fully understands all the choices that she's made that's led her to this really difficult point. And so like with her, the movie does a fantastic job of, I understand how hard this choice is, where it doesn't quite get there with Edie, where I'm like, Mm-hmm. The choice shouldn't be that hard, lady. But um, <laughs> right. I get it. He's charming? Question yeah, mark? Question um, mark. But with Charlene, it does a really good job. It does also a really good job with some of these other, like, you know, side characters and everything. So particularly with Dennis Haysbert, mm. where mm. It, the yeah. movie takes a lot of trouble for a character who ultimately only ends up involved with the crew for like a minute. Right. Like, I think it's killed. He off. dies super fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. The first one to die. Partially that... what's so tragic. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it really speaks to, you know, again, uh, the richness of the theme about crime and the nature of crime. Right. It wasn't like Breeden out of nowhere was like, I need to get back into crime. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But we understand, you know, he's out on parole. He's in a really tough spot. He has this asshole boss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bud Court, by the way. Oh, I know, <laughs> Uncredited right? Bud Court. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I love the line from Breeden where he says, like, I did time for what that guy does every day. Like, mm. that guy s- steals wages and takes advantage and abuses employees. And that is crime. And right. I, like, I did time for that. And this guy's just out here getting away with it. And I really love that entire building out of that character. And then his unceremonious and very quick end when he does Mm -hmm. agree to get back involved with the crew again just speaks volumes about what this movie is saying about crime Mm -hmm. um and i just dennis hayesford is so good (laughs) all the time yeah Yeah. it's great it's i i love there's extra excellent character work left and right you know in the supporting characters here yeah yeah this movie reminded me of uh breaking bad in two ways one of which is i love the moment where they're um pacino is waiting for them to like do the heist and de niro is just staring up to like where he doesn't even know there's a camera probably and then they're just sort of staring at each other through this camera lens and mm-hmm. then walks away which also reminded me a little bit of the departed when matt and leo are finally oh, on the yeah, phone yeah. and it's uh-huh, that, that uh-huh. kind of between those totally yeah. there, there's a moment in breaking bad that I, I just won't say the details of but basically a character is we know as the audience of a character walks from point a to point b he's going to be in very serious trouble and he goes halfway and then just turns around and leaves. And it's like, is he magical? Like, but it's just that sensing like something is wrong. Totally. But the other way I thought of it is I was thinking about Justine, uh, Al Pacino's wife and um, Skylar as characters mm-hmm. where like, mm-hmm. if you watch the movie for the first time, maybe you haven't seen it. You're like, oh yeah, they're just, there's this problem. I think you get a lot of movies from around this era where like the, the female characters are sort of just there to be like conflict for the male characters, even if male characters are, crappy people <laughs> like it's just like well but like okay but you're in the way and i love that both rewatching breaking bad from skylar's point of view or rewatching a heat from justine's point of view or rewatching fight club from marla's point of view you're like yeah. oh yeah you are the same person i'm a hundred percent on your right. side <laughs> but yeah. like yeah. my movie watching brain is telling me like this is the protagonist so anybody who's getting in their way is like a problem 
But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's and like as a very, very, very two dimensional squinting through your eyes kind of way of watching something. Yeah. But then that's why it does make it so much more rich and complex when you watch and you're like, oh, yeah, I wish I was watching the movie where you are the the protagonist. And like, this is what's happening in the background because I care more about you than about the protagonist. But it's the protagonist. So I'm going to watch them for a while. Yeah, it's just it's interesting. Mm hmm. But that there's enough there that you can tune into their frequency and like get it and like right, have it resonate right. of like, oh, okay, yeah, this is a terrible situation that this person is putting you in. And yeah. I appreciate that all of this is in this movie also and it has a room to mm-hmm. and it makes room for all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the scene that where Justine is confronting him earlier, like when they're like after that dinner and she's like, mm-hmm. you never talked to me about anything. And then he's just unnecessarily cruel to her which he is all the time, you know, um, Pacino's character, Hannah, is yeah. is kind of just, you don't have to talk to people like that. And yet you <laughs> right. do. Like, she, you know, <laughs> she makes pretty much a plea. And she's like, you know, you don't live with me. You live with all of these people that these the dead bodies, I think is what she says. Mm. And she's like, you know, you can talk to me. You should like be present basically in our marriage. And he's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> there's a long monologue. But, you know, right. th- that explains why he he feels like he can't be or that like his world is too difficult or gruesome to expose her to or something. It's the way that, again, the movie returns to these characters personal lives at exactly the right moments. Mm-hmm. They're like subplots that are woven through at precisely the right times. So that when the denouement arrives and Pacino gets home and Ralph is sitting on his couch, we're like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I'm with Justine 100% at that time where she's like, this is my friend Ralph. Hey, you don't have to go anywhere. Like, you know, basically, yeah. because last time I asked my husband to like be more present, he said no to my face. So, right. 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 Well, and I think what I love about that scene that you're talking about where she's like, you know, she is willing yeah. to like listen. Yep. And he does, he tries to put it on her. Like, you don't want to hear this. Right. But I think what adds dimension to it is that it, I read that as he can't deal with it. Like he can't mm. verbalize. He can't share that with someone. Like she has the strength to listen, but he doesn't have the strength to share it. And I feel like that's kind of what he realizes by the end when they're in the hospital. It's like, you don't want someone like me. Like I'm, like you mm. said, I'm only, I'm whoever I'm going after. Like that's who I am. And I think that's uh, part of what makes his arc pretty powerful. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, and jumping back really quick to the moment during the, yeah, the metals heist, uh, which we were just talking about mm. where De Niro's character, you know, he hears the sound and he just knows like yeah. somehow there's like a magical, like he knows. I heard in watching some of the behind the scenes, which are kind of like the movie long and kind of hard to comprehend a little <laughs> bit because it jumps around. There's interviews with like real policemen, but you're not sure what their relationship. Anyway, that moment was kind of inspired by an actual thing that happened during a heist where like the police were ready and some person shifted just a little bit. And that was enough for the people taking down the score to realize, nope, time to walk immediately. And so wow. that, that was inspired by a real thing. And I feel like that's the Michael Mann-ness that mm. is so great in these kinds of movies, because obviously we have like the bank heist scene, which is yep. one of the, the best shootout yep. heist mm. like ever. Uh, and part of it is because it is so real and sure. authentic. And there's so much that we can talk about it. But it's I remember yeah, watching it and and like we were saying at the beginning, Trish, the sound, the sound difference and all that mm-hmm. stuff. One of the things that uh, happened with this 
thing is that so they actually shot it in downtown obviously and they're actually using you know blanks not they're not firing bullets but like all the actors are doing all these actual things firing real guns and the sound is the actual sound it's production sound it's what mm, it actually wow. sounded like yeah being in that place where you hear the ricochet of the sound off all these buildings and through the streets and when the sound designers you know they did what they do in every movie which is they get the footage and they replace all the sound and the first time Michael Mann heard the you know the sound effects version, he was like, what is that? Like, get rid of this. Like, put the sound from the day wow. back in because that's what, like, it, what was it actually so, sounds like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, it's so loud. It's so scary. Like, it, you can, there's just so much power to it. And that scene is about, you know, these, these robbers that had more power than the police and were able to out. Yeah. But, like, out shoot them. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they were ambushed, but they, you know, pushed through and escaped because they have to. And, and, you know, that scene, you know, there's lots of lore about the scene and how they actually show it to like Marines, like on their first day of like, this Mm. is how you actually maneuver and like break through an ambush and the covering fire. And the Val Kilmer clip of him like reloading is like shown to like, if an actor can do this reloading this quickly and this efficiently, you should be able to. Like, yeah. So, like, there's so much authenticity to it that just enhances the power of that whole sequence right it's interesting because i have um the old uh, i think like the original blu-ray and i think i remember that being one of those things where they were um talking about the audio having problems like you guys were talking about i have my center channel turned up a lot so it, i think it works out it's like a nice balance but i did notice during a lot of the action sequences i was like this doesn't sound like movie action um, mm. And I was like, is my subwoofer off or something? And it was like the, the, the sort of like low frequencies, you get the kind of thing, you know, like watching someone punch someone in real life versus watching <laughs> someone punch someone in a movie. It's like a completely right. different, you know, you do a lot of watching people punch in real life. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's this weird, like, it's an interesting thing because what you're used to. So it's like they traded right. cinematic audio for realistic audio to get, like you were saying, Michael, that authenticity. Uh, you know, I think once you get used to it, it's fine, but it's a weird, it's almost jarring at first where you're like, oh, that's not what car crashes sound like in movies to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we talk about acting, we're often concentrating on what actors' faces are doing. Mm. And that is a component of acting. But, you know, and sometimes when we talk about the physicality of acting, we are like, oh, that Marvel hero trained for, you know, whatever to get super jacked for that role. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's part of the physicality of acting. But a lot of it is just your level of comfort and how you move in spaces and how mm. you handle equipment and how you like can sell the physicality of a life. Because that's mm. really what it is to be yeah. a character is to walk around in the life of another person, not just in the scene, but the entire life of a person leading up to that moment. and so all of the stuff that you guys are talking about in terms of like how actors move and handle guns becomes a huge part of acting. And there's a reason why you can't just put an actor in a scene and give them like a fake gun and be like, okay, you're a robber now. doesn't work that way because if that actor doesn't have training, then they're going to be completely unbelievable. It's the same with like pretty much any physical thing that an actor needs to do with a level of comfort to sell something like in terms of, you know, they have to learn to play the piano or they have to like be able to ride a horse believably or whatever it is, but they're like a cowboy. This movie is incredible in how much I believe those characters Mm. in that shootout scene where there's not a doubt in my mind. There is like not one red flag or any moment where it like the movie tips its hand and tries to act like, or the, 
that this might not be happening. I believe it's mm-hmm. happening completely. Mm-hmm. Right. And part of that's the sound, but part of it's also the performances and just. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the geography, like it's an incredibly well, like blocked and rehearsed scene, too. And just it's so impressive. Yeah. yeah. I want to quickly shout out Matt Damon is somebody who we don't think of as like a big character actor, like, oh, he plays like these like very different roles, you know, the way some people are, but he carries himself so differently in every movie. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like watch The Good Shepherd directed by De Niro and he carries himself in a way he doesn't carry himself like in any other movie. And it's that thing you're talking about where it's not all just in the face or the accent or that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so one thing I wanted to talk about with this bank heist scene was how many Christopher Nolan Dark Knight vibes I was getting <laughs> rewatching it mm-hmm. this time. Yeah. And I think he said this openly that the heat was a major reference. Yeah, it was it was the movie that he had the whole crew sit down and watch before right. we started. Yeah. And watching this bank heist scene, I was struck by just the confidence of it. Dark Knight is an amazing movie. And has its own amazing confidence and kind of brute force. There was something like almost more elegant about Heat. And in, in the interior bank scene, you know, when they're going in and they've got all the people on the ground. And and I love what De Niro says to them where he has kind of this. Yep. He's, he's so confident in his delivery of his, his line. He knows exactly what to say. We're here for the money. Like your money's safe. It's protected by the government. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> we're here for the bank's money. Don't be a fool. Don't risk your life. Like. And just the efficiency and the, like you're saying, the way the actors are moving and the mm-hmm. these are pros who are just doing their job so well. I couldn't believe how confident that entire set piece felt. And, and then it extends out into this incredible shootout in the street, mm-hmm. which I think, yeah, a big part of it, like you said, Trisha, was the geography as well. And the fact that it's not on a set like, and you can feel that it's not on a yes. set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. all yes. really in downtown L.A. And Michael Mann uh, didn't shoot any sets for this movie. Yep. It's all on location. and. That also adds to this feeling of, wait, this feels better and more realistic than usual. And you know, when Al Pacino's running as fast as he can, holding this big gun in, oh on God. the actual downtown streets of L.A., it feels visceral in this mm-hmm. amazing way that I, I don't get from most action scenes. So I think it still really stands up as like this one of a kind sequence. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And they're out there in the parking lot too. And there's all these civilians mm-hmm. every, like there's all yeah. of these just like shoppers everywhere and yeah. like families. And they're like hiding behind cars in the parking lot. And I, uh, it's so it's real. Just, right. yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, it's all that location work, which is so, I don't know. I know why we don't make movies completely and entirely on location, but the fact that this movie is, just feels like it happened around the corner. It feels like it happened right here, right outside all the time. Mm-hmm. It's so impressive. And yeah, like, I mean, it did, I guess, immediately after, right? Or like in a couple of years oh, later, right, there was a, a big shootout. Yeah, there was like yeah. a big copycat thing. There was right. like a shootout on the streets of North Hollywood. I guess they're, Michael Mann's like really, really good at his <laughs> job then. <laughs> Well, and that it's for us literally did happen around the court. Like, I remember the first time I came to L.A. and like drove through downtown with you, Alex. I was like, wait a minute. Like, this (laughs) is where the heat. Like, I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's hard to do this. Like, it's hard and it's expensive. It requires tons of commitment from the actors to spend months and months like training not to just look cool, but to learn how to actually do a thing. And I feel like so much of movies and action scenes are about kind of like signaling action and Mm -hmm. danger, but it's about like fun also. Right. And nothing about the bank heist is fun. Like it's not an action scene played for popcorn entertainment. And yeah, just hearing about how they 
it was shot on location, but they could only shoot on the weekend. So they would have to like come back every weekend and reset up everything. And so it, it just like, it takes a dedication and mm. money that like, isn't always sense making or is hard to convince people it's worth spending that money. But obviously when you really do it and commit to it and all the stars align, you create one of the best sequences in movie history. Mm-hmm. I think the other like Dark Knight connection this movie really had for me this time was its epicness. Just it, it's you know, the mm. we say Dark Knight's a movie and a half, and this movie also has that feeling in the best way. Yeah, where they, I mean, there's some point like I guess it's when Pacino's in a helicopter tracking down De Niro before mm-hmm. their coffee shop scene. Mm-hmm. There's just some like sweeping shots of L.A. at night and a helicopter flying through downtown, and just like God, oh, this movie's epic. Like, yeah. I really. <laughs> Like, this is not just like a little crime story down on the streets. This is like a big, sweeping, epic movie. And it's just, I don't know, it's just fun to have that experience. Like you were saying, Michael, we don't have a lot of that. And to have a three-hour epic movie movie is just, it's kind of a forgotten art in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like they cover, and maybe it's just because we know the geography of the city, but, you know, we understand how big the city is. And then the the locations that they actually go to are so spread out. But then also mm-hmm. they, they like talk about locations that are super spread out where it's like De Niro's character lives in Venice and like his girlfriend <laughs> lives in Silver Lake. And you're like, really? <laughs> um, or, you know, in, in approximately those neighborhoods or whatever, or she, she, she lives above like Sunset Junction or something. Or mm-hmm. like we know how far apart that is. But the movie also does a lot to convey that to you where you can see it shows us the view from her place. And then it shows us his house by the water, you know, mm-hmm. and then the freeways as they're like heading for LAX. And like, we got to go to that hotel by the airport. And like, they're in the car for a while and stuff like that. I feel like there's a, a big commitment to the geography of Los Angeles here and, and just sort of conveying the size of it. Yeah. You can tell it's a period piece because a single graphic designer has a, a full house to herself with that view in LA. Right. She tries to be like, well, the house isn't nice, but the view is great. She tries. The house looks really nice. Lady. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, like, I think this was like the movie that Michael Mann kind of fell in love with LA mm-hmm. with. And, you know, he did mm-hmm. a lot of ride-alongs with cops like to the point where like they were almost treating him like a partner like you know they mm. roll up to a place and if it was dangerous like the cop would give him one of his sidearms because like that's how michael man like wow. he just knew it all that like much and like knew wow. what the calls meant and blah 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 so like mm. again mad respect for that level of commitment to detail and when it all comes together and pays off it really pays off hell yes yeah Real quick, uh, left turn before we get into lessons. I just wanted to comment, like, this doesn't get talked about a lot. The fact that Heat is a, a remake of Michael Mann's own TV movie, mm-hmm. um, L.A. Takedown, which was 1989. So it was only six years prior to Heat. And I was thinking, like, how often has that happened where directors remade their own film? And I looked into it a bit. And the most common thing that's happened in the past 30 years is foreign directors where they do an American remake, but then you have the mm. direct that same director remake their film like Funny Games mm. or I think The Grudge and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have to go back to like the 50s to like uh, Hitchcock remade The Man Who Made uh, Who Knew Too Much and Cecil B. DeMille remade The Ten Commandments. But it's like they made it in the 30s where movies were like still figuring out what movies were, you know, and then they yeah. remade it in the 50s or something. But he is the only major example I could find in any sort of recent history of an American director 
who made a feature film. Granted, it's a TV movie and it's, you know, low budget and all that kind of stuff. But then they remade it six years later. And uh, it's just fascinating because you watch LA Takedown. I haven't seen it, but I've watched like I, you can it's on YouTube because no one cares that it's on YouTube. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, the, you've got the opening heist. You've got the diner scene. You've got all those things, but in like 97 minutes or something. So it's just sort of taking that idea that Michael Mann had and saying, Let's now translate this into what is a big, epic Hollywood film. Well, what I was going to say is that what does happen is directors make their shorts into features. Of course. And some might argue that that's what happens here, Mm. is all I'm saying. Mm. Like, by comparison, L.A. Takedown (laughs) is a bit of a short. Right. right. (laughs) Here's a proof of concept. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. For my movie, Heat, that I really wanted to make. So, Right. Interesting. I think there should be more of that. I think there are plenty of movies that I would love to see someone just do it again. Try right. again. Take right. two. Like, you learned. It's not going to be worse than what right. you just did. So Probably. <clears throat> the prequels. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> I recently watched uh, Slacker, Richard Linklater's uh, mm-hmm. like one of the, his first film that got him sort of on the indie map. And this movie has no main characters. It's just you're sort of following people who are in a scene first person of the scene like wanders off and then the second person now is in a different scene which is frustrating is this a movie what is happening but it's a fascinating way to like keep you engaged for for 80 90 minutes just to follow people and there's no main characters or anything and i just was thinking i want to see him remake this movie shot for shot with the exact same script but every actor is played by a major or every character is played by a major actor as opposed to when he first made it, you know, the only person you recognize is Richard Linklater, who plays like the first character in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you don't recognize anybody else. Like, I really want to see that same exact movie, but with like all these actors showing up for a day and filming their scene and then leaving, which is such a Linklater thing to do that I just totally. don't want that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is just a Terrence Malick movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Except half as long. Sure. Yeah. Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Heat? Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. We've talked recently about a lot of crime movies, it feels like, especially, you know, we did The Departed for a Patreon exclusive episode. And I mentioned on that episode, you know, I sometimes have trouble with kind of gangster crime movies because I never really end up caring about anybody. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to feel that enthralled with a bunch of dudes who are just kind of like, Ugh, people just being <laughs> bad for a long time and like it's kind of fun how bad they are but i just get bored by that and i really get enthralled by the you know the criminals in this movie especially neil because he is such a complex character he's really smart he's very calculating and smart uh and kind of cool and collected about his work he's not he's not doing the same thing al pacino's doing like he he's a different type of energy and he yeah he's not like a generic kind of boy child man you know because i think a lot of times in, in <laughs> yeah. kind of like there's the kind of like this crazy this crazy fun of like look at all these like basically child's men being bad with each other and saying super offensive stuff and just being like silly in ways that and people are getting killed when they're being silly you know <laughs> i just get kind of like annoyed by it after a while and i think i really can get into the De Niro character in this in this movie and I and part of it is you know the relationship with Edie but also there are those little touches throughout like in the bank high scene where he does have this whole spiel worked out for like I'm gonna just be straightforward with you people we're not here to hurt you like don't do anything stupid he will kill them if they get in the way but he's got this like interesting cool 
calm, collected, like Robert ethics going on, even as he is a little bit sociopathic. And it just makes him really compelling to me in a way that the more, I don't know, just ruffian criminal generic thing. I just, I get quite bored with. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good choice to make. Yeah. The criminals in this movie as interesting as the cops and three-dimensional and likable in these really interesting ways. So yeah, if you, if you want, if you want to get me on board for a crime movie, <laughs> Heat shows how to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and he calls out the thing that you're talking about in that coffee shop scene where he's like, do you see me like knocking over liquor stores? Like with, yeah. you know, right. like born a thrill tattoo. seeking. Yeah. And a born to lose tattoo. Like he's like, that's not the kind of person that I am. And you get the sense very early on that it's not that he enjoys violence. Like, He'll commit violence for practical reasons. Right. And basically will commit as much violence as is needed, it feels like, but mm-hmm. but not more than that. You know, it's interesting in the bank scene, one of my favorite moments is when he punches that guy in the face to get the key and tells him to let it bleed. Mm. And he's like, don't move, let it bleed, let it bleed. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, those touches are so amazing. I They're love that. They're perfect because yeah. it's like hitting this guy in the face was what need it was the efficient way to get what he wanted and then like creating that intimidation and making an example of this guy is also a very practical thing to do in that situation it's not that he thinks it's fun to punch the guy in the face right and in fact they do a really good job of setting up a contrast between Macaulay and our best friend, Wayne Grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, Wayne Grow is a serial killer who murders a child prostitute mm-hmm. early in this movie. Right. right. For funsies. For yeah. funsies. And, yeah. and that's the thing is that Wayne Grow is a worse person. Like, yeah. objectively, he is, a, he is the bad person in this movie. And so that contrast also makes it easier to root for Macaulay. We see what evil looks like. Right. It looks like somebody like Wayne That's right. pure evil. Whereas Macaulay is somebody that has, as you're talking about, this logic to the way that he behaves. And it doesn't seem like it's a pleasure to him to harm others. Right. right? Yeah. Like he with the stuff that he's stealing, he's not stealing it because he's trying to hurt anybody. He's trying to, you know, get the money or whatever. But the violence part is just part of the gig, unfortunately, kind of. If it has that feeling. Right. But I also like that that punch is a response to him saying, where's the key? And the guy says, what key? Right. And then he punches him, which is a little like, hey, man, have more respect for me. Like we've done our homework. Right. We didn't just show yeah. up, you know? So as soon as you say what key, well, now you like you immediately get the repercussions of that, of, of trying to play your way out of this, you know? So I, I think it's like, even for the audience, the punch is a little like, all right, yeah, he kind of deserved it. He asked for it, you know? Also, just really quickly, that the point you're making about Wayne Grove being awful, that's also what's great about, you know, the opening heist, right? Where you, yep. that's where they yeah. very clearly set all that up. So it's an action scene that is also doing tons of character work. But I feel like it's also why when Neil turns around at the end of the film, it's yes. such a, like, there's, it's such a complicated emotion because yeah. you do want to see Wayne Grove get stopped. He's the worst. Yeah, right. He's the worst. So like, you get it. A hundred percent also, and you kind of want it to happen, but you also understand why you're dooming yourself by making that choice. Yeah. yeah. Trisha, lessons. Yeah, my very quick lesson is about dialogue and subtext, which is that you don't need subtext if your dialogue is fast enough. Mm. Basically. <laughs> this movie doesn't have a lot of subtext. Right. There are not a lot of scenes in this movie where people are not saying what they mean. Mm. You know, basically everyone's mm-hmm. saying exactly what they mean all the time. Mm-hmm. because every scene is kind of a lay our cards on the table confrontation. There's not a lot of like right. secrecy 
or like secret maneuvering happening. Yeah. It's not happening. Everyone is saying exactly what they mean. But and when I mean fast enough, what I really mean is efficient. Yeah. The dialogue, though, has this amazing efficiency. It doesn't have subtext, but it goes straight to the heart of whatever the scene is in the snappiest and most entertaining way possible. You know, as I touched on briefly earlier, it does a tremendous amount of work to build out the world where they're kind of speaking in code, it seems like, but it's understandable enough. If you're like following along, you can figure out, you know, what Hannah is talking about when he's like giving the rundown at the beginning of like, here's everything that we need to try to solve whoever did this armored car. He's like, mm-hmm. slick, run it through the FBI database. You'll get the phone book. Do it anyway. This mm-hmm. explosive, <laughs> it might be foreign, probably not, but we might get lucky, right? It Again, it's super efficient and it's really snappy and fun to listen to because almost the lingo of it creates a puzzle to solve, but it's a very solvable puzzle where it's like, I don't know exactly what that meant when he said it, but I can infer what it means. And it also pieces together this world and this puzzle and these character dynamics too. It's great. It's just great, punchy dialogue. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it is also just, you know, the world of this film that that it exists in is you know, people on teams trying to communicate efficiently. Yeah. So like, that's part of what makes them so good is that they do have this like lingo uh, and shorthand with each other that is creating this puzzle that is, is then fun for us to like tune into, like you're saying, in absence of subtext in those scenes, because there's almost like subtext for us. where like, they know right. what they're talking about, mm-hmm. but we have to like keep up and, and make sure we're tracking everything, which right. is mm-hmm. engaging. Yeah. I just need John Voigt to speak a little more clearly. And not mumble so much. Like, he always sounds like he's doing a Christopher Walken impression to me. <laughs> but yeah, it just reminds me, Brian, you were talking about the physical volume of things mm-hmm. and how like if 10 is we can hear something perfectly, seven makes us lean forward, but right. two makes us lean back. I feel like that's the line that you're walking also with jargon. Yeah. When you're when you're working in a world that has very specific jargon, like a medical world or, or a crime procedural or a movie like this, you want to have your jargon at a seven. Yeah. We don't want to mm-hmm. be able to understand it perfectly because then it won't feel believable to, you know, those of us that are not in the world. Right. But also don't make it so slangy that we cannot parse it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this movie is sort of perfectly read on that line of like, if you're working in a very specific story world, and you don't have time for subtext, which this movie absolutely does not. <laughs> uh-huh. Just make it fun for us to listen to. Make it really efficient and really sharp. Yeah. Brian, lesson. Yeah, mine uh, goes off of that a little bit because I, you know, the most famous thing about Heat is that scene, that diner scene. And I was thinking, like, I love a good scene where the good the good guy and the bad guy, like, I'll say protagonist and antagonist, just sit down and exchange values. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like you have the the dark night with, you know, the, the interrogation scene with the Joker. Mm-hmm. You have Ned and Cersei in Game of Thrones, as you know, mm-hmm. I just got to rewatch thanks to the wonderful uh, Mass Effect video you you guys did. And you, the car ride with John Doe in seven, literally mm-hmm. all of collateral. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, the, and then you get it a lot with like Sherlock Holmes, Bond, Star Wars, superhero, yeah. where it's like there's a very clear you sort of lead a very clear villain and then they are going to talk about why they are who they are and, and why they do the things they do and i think if you have a well-designed antagonist and protagonist the entire plot of your story is already going to be based on the on their opposing values like black panther for instance it's like you don't necessarily have a sit-down scene between those two characters until the like 
last scene of the movie, but you understand how the entire movie is based on these two clear value systems, you know? But when you do have a sit-down scene, if you've designed those characters well, then the scene should just write itself. Because as you were saying, Trisha, with no subtext, Heat can is a great example. You just literally have them sit down and say, this is how I feel about life. Yep. <laughs> but this is how I feel about life. Welp then guess what? We're going to have to kill each other. <laughs> like, and so it's like, not only is it just, it's just like really, I don't want to say easy to write dialogue, obviously, but there's a very easy way into a scene between those two characters when they have such differing viewpoints. And in this case, similar viewpoints, but in differing ways, which makes it interesting. But then you get this great conflict and high stakes of a scene where people are sitting down having coffee when what they're talking about is that because we have these viewpoints, we're going to have to 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 kill each other, basically. You know, it's like uh, mm -hmm. the the sort of flirtation scene in North by Northwest where all they're doing is saying words to each other, but you're like, they're going to do it. <laughs> I love that scene, it's by so the way. Good. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Double entendres. Yeah. Right. They actually had to edit a line for that scene to make it more uh, acceptable to audiences, but that now it has more subtext. Uh, exactly. And, you know, we could... When we talk about North by Northwest, which will hopefully be someday, we can get into it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I like that also the scene has a, an urgency and a stakes to it because of what's at stake with these two characters, even though, again, it's literally just them sitting, talking, having a conversation. Yeah. It occurs to me that the title of the movie is exactly the, my lesson and the thing that I was talking about, which mm. is that it's like a piece of jargon, right? right. Or, or slang kind of. Right, right, we, right. Can, right. we can very easily infer what it means. And it's like, yeah, when you feel the heat coming around the corner, you got to walk away, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it's tied thematically to all of that. And like, like you're saying, Brian, what I think maybe makes this, this scene also feel more effortless than a lot of those kinds of scenes where the protagonist spars with the antagonist is that mm -hmm. because everything surrounding it feels right, it, it feels like an organic place for things to end up so that it can be what it is. And so many of the other, you know, Dark Knight is good, but then there was like a whole series of like, then every movie after that had to have like, right. it feels forced. Right, it feels forced yeah. and contrived, and like now Khan has to talk to Kirk. Yeah, <laughs> behind the glass, the same yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. But also, like, I think it's usually a sign that other things are working too when it can be like that. That good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you, Michael? So I think my lesson is what you said earlier, Trisha, toward the beginning is like you said this phrase of like there's a period in the movie where the theme starts to emerge or like something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that really struck me and this can kind of tie into what I'm going to talk about in my, what am I watching? But that the part of what is unique about this movie and this era and how long this movie is, and that it has time to just switch modes and make time for setting up the theme. Where like there's some plot stuff happening, but at a, at a certain point it is just like let's get to know these characters. This is like what they want and their struggles and the opposite. Like it's just super focused on understanding them so that we understand what this movie is about. About and that that is as critical as the plot machinations. Like that's and I just love that this movie does make time for that. It can be slow. And maybe not like perfect, but I think if you're going to have this sort of big operatic story, there needs to be a section that's just like, listen, everyone, this is what this movie is about. And by doing that, then the rest of it can have that meaning. And I think what is unique about this film is that it starts off with a bang, like you were saying, Brian, it gives you the heist thing right up top. And then it's like, we're going to make time so that the audience understands what we're talking about in this film. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that's a worthwhile thing to do in your movie. Like, I'd rather have movies that are like too long or slow because they're doing that than mm-hmm. some other thing because that's mm. so much more impactful, I think, for the viewing experience. So, <sighs> good movie. Yeah, good movie. really good movie. I agree. Wait, so what are you watching? Because now I'm curious how that all blends together. So I watched In the Heights recently, nice. uh, which I'm a little bit late to, but I watched it on the 4th of July kind of randomly. Perfect. That's, and that's it was perfect. perfect. I was like, yeah. yeah, this is like great. And like the fireworks were going off as, you know, there's a sequence in the movie where there's fireworks happening. And so like it all just a wonderful serendipitous experience. Mm. And yeah, I have lots of thoughts. It was really interesting seeing in the heights after seeing Hamilton, obviously, because I'm mm-hmm. coming in and doing lots of comparisons to Hamilton, but also it's that fascinating thing of seeing an earlier work by an artist and like, you know, seeing that evolution and those comparisons. But it, it was also, I think, the why I was connecting it is that there's something that I think both Hamilton and this do and, you know, that stage plays can do more is have a, a period where it's okay to just be like, and now we're going to tell you what this is about and mm-hmm. so like in the heights has a period where it's like we're going to introduce you to all the people and like this is their mm-hmm. comp and this is what they want and so it's like it's all like part of the story is just setting up the theme and the struggles so it's like very clear what the story is about and like a lot of times in film you kind of hide that or try to like sneak mm. it in here or there and in theater or in other art forms sometimes it's more acceptable to just be like front and center like this is what it is someone's gonna sing it at you like you're gonna know <laughs> what we're talking about mm. and that i appreciate that and it was interesting watching in the heights because the first 20 30 minutes were kind of bumpy for me as i was getting into this like hybrid film musical language thing mm-hmm. but the payoff for it once all the pieces that were kind of like once it's all set up when they all started to come together and pay off it was really impactful and really mm. emotional for me again i just i appreciate things that will take the time and risk maybe boring the audience a little bit for a little bit of time if it's in service of actually setting up the things that are going to make you care when all the stuff goes down by the end nice in the heights i enjoyed it quite a bit it's really fun it's really fun i want more dancing in movies yep <laughs> also that should be that should be a thing alex what about you what are you watching uh so i checked out a netflix documentary because it said it was narrated by david attenborough so that always catches of my course. attention you know but this is not the normal kind of bbc nature fair it's it's about the planet but it's called breaking boundaries and it's a more just direct message movie it's an hour and 15 minutes about uh, a scientist who's identified nine planetary boundaries that if we go into the red zone for enough of these like there's no going back you know it's over for the planet as we know it and so it's a really interesting movie to try to take the conversation around what's wrong with our planet away from just climate change away from just you know if we cross this temperature we're screwed you know, this is kind of single metric way of looking at the planetary crisis Hmm. because that's one of the boundaries is like if we get this much carbon in the atmosphere it's gonna be really hard to go back from that but there's also biodiversity loss like that has cascading effects to everything uh you've got fresh water you've got air pollution you've got like all these things if they like cross a certain boundary um it's gonna be very hard to imagine a world's after it (laughs) um that we want to be in it tries to have hope also it talks about how (laughs) 
there are other planetary boundaries we, we began to cross and came back from like the, actually the ozone is one of those mm. boundaries that we like banned all the things that were creating a hole in the ozone layer and we like stopped a catastrophe from happening there so it's possible theoretically to mm-hmm. bring ourselves back from these boundaries with planetary action uh we just need to do it <laughs> <laughs> basically if you're already depressed about everything probably don't need to watch it but it's it's a really it's it's it was interesting and informative to me to to stop thinking about all these kind of ecological crises as just one dimensional about mm. climate it was it was interesting to see how you know things like soil health and the way food is grown is just as maybe impactful to our future on the planet as other things so it just it kind of expands the view and the conversation on all that breaking boundaries on netflix some pretty cheesy graphics <laughs> which almost made me turned it off like a lot of like i feel like they were using like a template like an after effects template it was <laughs> like, kind of sad if you can get past that the content is still very informative and good awesome awesome brian what about you uh yeah i've got i've got three that are all related so i'm gonna buzz through them real quick because it's a long episode but back in early 2020 i mentioned i was theater that i was going to was doing a kubrick marathon over the course of the year and i had watched like some of his very very earliest movies uh and then now they're back and they're continuing which is great uh so now we're into sort of the the middle early phase few weeks ago, I went and saw Dr. Strangelove, uh, which I love mm-hmm. so much. I've seen six so or seven good. times, and it's it's probably one of my like top five favorite comedies of all time. I think it gets funnier every time I watch it. So if you haven't seen it, watch it twice. Um, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> once to like get what it is, and then twice to appreciate everything about it. Peter Sellers plays three characters. George C. Scott gives a performance that Stanley Kubrick trick- tricked him into giving by telling him, we're done with the real takes. Now just do one that's like out, out there for fun. And then that's the-, those the takes he used, which is an insane way of making films. We'll get into that in a second with Kubrick. But I just love Dr. Strangelove so much. And then just last week, I saw uh, Paths of Glory, which I had hmm. seen before, but had not seen in a good 15 years, which is the this you know war film with Kirk Douglas. Um, and it's thought of as one of these just, you know, one of these classic solid war films. And the first half is just 1917 precursor, just long takes of mm. people running through absolute chaos and so much practical things, you know, practical stuff is going on. And then the second half becomes kind of a courtroom drama hmm. with Kirk Douglas playing this like Atticus Finch character almost. And uh, and yeah, it's just it's one of those movies, again, where like Heat, it's sort of. You're like it's a little meandering and not quite sure what they said, not quite sure what the stakes are here. But then by the time it's all done, you're like, yes, absolutely. You made a movie that I just watched. Good job. Mm-hmm. But then finally, a friend of the podcast, Maggie Mae Fish, just released a YouTube video called The Myth of the Auteur, which is this nice takedown of this idea that you have to suffer for your art and specifically to make others suffer for your art. So she talks a lot about... Very important. Yeah. She talks a lot about Kubrick's treatment of Shelley Duvall uh, during The Shining. But she also talks about how The Shining you know, maybe could make a clear statement about what it's trying to talk about. And she has interviews with other actors from other Kubrick films who are like, brilliant guy, maybe not the most caring or thoughtful human. And, you know, like, just I cut my hand and he said, just keep going. Like, let's get the take and, and that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. And, and it's it's also a nice way of of sort of, 
you can separate those things. Those can be two separate things. The, 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 the thing that you like to watch and the, the artistry behind it versus the, the actual human things that were happening behind the scenes, which may not be good. But then she uses David Lynch as an example, who I also love, uh, of a filmmaker who can make very weird, disturbing films about upsetting things and make sure everyone on set is comfortable and happy and having a nice time, which is obviously very important. So, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a really good kind of cathartic, um, uh, thing, especially when you, if you are like me watching a bunch of Kubrick. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, I love that video. It was really good. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so, Trisha, mm-hmm. I know you watched something from one of our favorite sponsors, Mubi. What did you watch recently? In fairness, I, I'm in the middle of it because uh, it's long. Okay. Mm. Uh, in the spirit of heat, I was inspired to turn back on Los Angeles Plays Itself, which is actually a movie that I've seen before. Actually, I saw it originally at the silent movie theater over on Fairfax back in the be- way before times. Uh, I saw it actually in 2013 as part of the 10 year anniversary. So Los Angeles Plays Itself is a documentary that came out in 2003. And it is basically a three hour long doc about films set in Los Angeles and filmed in Los Angeles. And it's about sort of how LA has been portrayed in film over the course of like cinema history. And so part of the documentary is about the history of LA itself as a hub of filmmaking and how LA has like changed and evolved and how film has sort of like both like influenced that and reflected that. Hmm. And this sort of like, yeah, the symbiotic relationship of films being made here and also how that has influenced the real life of the city. Mm -hmm. It is just so comprehensive. Uh, It was made by this film scholar named Tom Anderson. And he's very particular that you call it Los Angeles plays itself because he doesn't like that Los Angeles people call it LA because Mm, interesting. Yeah, he he (laughs) thinks that I think the joke in the movie is like, does any city have a bigger inferiority complex than Los Angeles, which shortens its name to these two initials? I don't know if I agree with interesting read yeah yeah wait what (laughs) he was there when i went to this screening uh wow at the silent movie theater in 2013 but anyway the good news is this is now on movie and you guys can catch it it used to be the kind of thing where like i would see it it'd be like on in a bar you know Mm. like on the tv in the bar or whatever and i'm like oh my god it's los angeles plays itself because it's sort of like a geeky really geeky like film person It has clips from 200 movies in it. And he does a dive into all of this stuff about how Los Angeles has been portrayed in film and including clips from Heat does talk about that, but then Mm. lots of other amazing like LA movies. So really strongly recommend. Uh, Like I said, I'm I'm partway through my rewatch of it and really, really enjoying it. So definitely go check it out over on movie. Awesome. It's such a perfect recommendation. Like that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know what movie is, movie is a curated streaming service featuring exceptional films from all across the world. What's really fun about them is that, yeah, all the films on there are handpicked and they always have like a a little blurb about why they picked it. And uh, yeah, this sounds like exactly what I would expect to find on movie. Yeah. If you're a film nerd geek, like Trish is saying, movie is absolutely great for that. Uh, and you can get 30 days of movie for free when you go to our link, movie.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay. So check them out by signing up. You're supporting us. You're getting 30 days of great cinema for free. I'm going to go watch Los Angeles Plays Itself because I'm upset that you I've never really seen it. really should, yeah. Because it sounds amazing. Cool. Thank you. 
This has been our conversation about heat. This was really fun. I didn't expect us to like talk about heat anytime soon. And I'm so glad that we did. Because uh, like I said, it was really fun to rewatch and kind of replace it high on my list of movies that I love. So I've experienced a great catharsis through all of this. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yes. We want to say thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cairos. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.